0: Welcome to the Simple Questions Podcast. This is your host, Dylan Carnahan. The question for this episode is, what is it like to be a fighter pilot? You will learn in this episode, the rigorous training required to become a fighter pilot, insights into the specific combat strategies employed during the first Gulf War, and the unique capabilities of various fighter planes. Our guest served in the United States Air Force for 27 years achieving the rank of colonel participated in numerous missions quantified by 4500 usaf flying hours 13 combat sorties and 169 combat hours during operations such as southern watch received significant awards and honors during their military career including a distinguished flying cross for saving a valuable airplane during their first combat sortie an award from the Association of Old Crows for electronic combat planning of proven force during Desert Storm. I introduce to you Kurt Ditmer. My first introduction, if you will, to aviation was quite some time ago. I was a grade schooler and I had took a trip with my parents to see my uncle out in Colorado. And one of those days that we were out in Colorado, my uncle took me up in a plane and we kind of flew around for a bit. I remember we looked at his house (laughs) from the plane and that was kind of my first aviation experience outside of, uh, you know, obviously knowing or flying, being in a plane and flying to a destination like a vacation. So I'm curious, Kurt, what initially drew you to aviation and what were your first experiences?
1: Well, my, my dad was a, uh, a fighter pilot, a, a three-war veteran. So he actually, uh, as a kind of getting into his background, uh, so he, he enlisted into the, basically the aviation cadet program, World War II. So he got selected uh, at the time. He uh, graduated high in his class, but he went to bombers. So he, he actually went to the B-17, but he walked into the uh, wing commander of the uh, B-17, and said, "Hey, sir, I want to be a fighter pilot." He was 19 years old. So, and they said, uh, "Lieutenant, I like your spunk, but you're not going to be a fighter pilot." It's 1943 because all the bomber pilots were getting killed. So they were. That was uh, attrition was six percent. Want to kind of look in the history books. So he said, but I'm going to do you a favor, Lieutenant. And he ran him through the course twice. So the first time he went through, he was a co-pilot. The second time he went through, he was a 19-year-old aircraft commander. So he took his uh, B-17 over his crew. And uh, the nine crews that went over with, it, you know, with his, this was the only one that came back. So, wow. But while he was there, uh, he couldn't leave. He finished his, uh, they went from 25 missions to 30. And that was a, a, essentially a death knell because those extra five missions at 6% attrition is pretty ugly. So his odds were were against him, but they made it. So his crew made it. And then uh, he was looking around for something to fly. So he flew fighters and he was delivering them to the bases because they were bringing them off the boats. And so he ended up walking into a P-51 base and uh, say, Hey, you need pilots? <laughs> and they go, yeah. yeah. He goes, oh, I'm a volunteer, so he's going through training, AWOL, and they're training him. And the bomber command comes, Hey, what are you doing here? He says, oh, I thought you sent me. No, he didn't send you. Well, I'm almost done. And they said, Okay, and so he became a fighter pilot, and he flew a P-51 Mustangs, and so he was basically. They had so many at combat hours, they gave him, and you know, he was a became a flight lead and was flying as you know for combat. And he got his first kill by diving down from 25,000 feet, rolls out behind an or 109 and shoots it down. And uh, he went home, he landed, and you know, celebrate, all that kind of stuff. But that night his chest was hurting, and he had collapsed a lung. So they told him he couldn't leave before Bomber Command. Uh, told him he couldn't leave because of the invasion. It was you know super secret. But now they sent him home because he had a collapsed lung. And so anyway, went to Oklahoma and ended up uh getting back to flying again so his one lung ended up being better than a normal man's you know two lungs and so he got back into flying was flying the, uh, p-51s for the National Guard in Oklahoma and they activated and uh they told him hey they're looking for volunteers or whatever they wanted to take him back active duty as a bomber pilot he said no so he volunteered and went in as an F 51 now. So it was a fighter ground attack. Went to Korea and fought in Korea. And then uh, while he was there, they said, hey, if anybody wants to be a, uh, a jet pilot, F 86s, uh, you got to go active duty. So he volunteered and went to active duty and, and flew the F 86. So that was the uh, one that had about a 14 to 1 or 12 to 1 kill ratio. So he ends up getting uh, three kills. So now he's got one in me, one nine, he's got three kills, he's got trying to be an ace. But he called uh, my mom and said, hey, I, if it's stay on my last uh, flight. He actually got two, shot down two. And uh, so he wanted to stay and she said, well, you'll be a bachelor if you do. And my brother was born a year later and I was born a year after that. So that's how we got introduced to uh, being able and being with my uh, my dad so uh, he took us flying a couple of times as kids but the best gift you could ever give any kid we didn't understand it or know at the time but we're in el reno oklahoma and uh this guy's we're up we go out to the airport every so often you know we try to get some flights Mm -hmm. and that type of stuff so we're out there with my dad and uh, this guy he's got a a satabra so it's an acrobatic Paper and wood airplane, and uh, he's hitting a headwind, so he's probably doing about 30, 40 knots of ground speed. He lands and he goes, "Who wants to buy an airplane?" My dad goes, "How much?" He shows 1,800 bucks. He goes, oh, "I'll go get the checkbook." So we jump in the car, drive into town, knocks on the door. "Hey, mom." I'm, I'm buying an airplane. She goes, "Oh, how much? 1,800 bucks." I say, okay, gives him the checkbook, and we went out and bought an airplane. So I learned how to fly before I could drive a car. Wow. And my brother. So I was 14. My brother was 15. He didn't like it nearly as much as me. But you know, he he didn't like the yelling. My dad would eh, keep your hand on the throttle, and you're going to keep your hand on the. You know, my hands get tired. So he'd do things and he was kind of teaching you seat of the pants flying so to me it was just it was the most fun you could possibly have there was nothing better than other than keep your head on the throttle well i found out later as you're reading his memoirs that he was shooting a mig but he had both hands on the throttle The f86 had 650 caliber machine guns in the nose so he's hitting it and pieces are coming off but he's not closing because he's and someone starts shooting at him, and bullets come over the cockpit. He reaches down. The throttle had rattled back. So he was in almost idle power. That's why he wasn't gaining on this airplane. That was his fifth kill. So I learned how to fly, and you never took your hand off the throttle. I'm going, great. You know, If I ever get a chance to shoot one down, I won't let the throttle rattle back. So anyway, so that was my dad's. You know, He had war stories out wazoo and he never told them in front of my mom we always but if he was ever with a bunch of other fighter pilots they'd be telling these stories and my brother and i'd be hiding behind the couch listening because he didn't want us to know all that stuff but, but what he did is he he said this is the best gift ever this is unlock flying time because he wasn't an instructor he was just letting us fly he put us in the front seat and he taught us everything about flying but when the Air Force first sees you fly, they're going to think you have golden hands.
0: <laughs> so, Kurt, you, I mean, what a, what a rich history, first off, right? And, and yeah. you're kind of born into that. You're hearing all these stories. You're getting unlogged flying time, right? And you're, you're being indoctrinated. And you, you enjoy that. You enjoy flying. Can you tell us about your journey to becoming a fighter pilot?
1: sure yeah and by the way if you want to read the stories about uh, my dad Nancy uh, got a book every one of the grandkids and all of my uncles all the kids uh across the Dittmer family got a book and it's called old tat just ask her about that okay and you can read it it's a 99 pages it's a quick read but and uh tat stands for tired ass tiger so one of the things that that happens with fighter pilots is they never call you your name. So like my call sign, tac call sign is tulips. And everybody goes, why tulips? You know, that's not the flower. It's because my brother was lips and he had big lips. And then we would fly on the same schedule and they put lips and lips too. I became tulips. That's one of the things about flying fighters. But so to get to the fine for me Um, the bottom line is is I wanted to go to the air force Academy. My dad took us, um, early on while we were go from El Reno to Colorado Springs, just step out and you have 58,000 acres of this pristine, beautiful chapel against the, uh, the mountains. It was beautiful. I mean, it was just one of those places and you're kind of having to work through to be an athlete, to be a leader, to get into the air force Academy. was at the time was called the whole man concept we kind of bastardized that to the manhole concept but it was how you could you know be this best person that you could be because you had to compete for an appointment to the academy okay so, and so the Air Force Academy to me my brother got in first so he was the lead in the pack he got in and uh, I remember when you graduate from high school it's, the uh, recruiter came and said, "You know, you probably haven't seen Carl Dittmer around very much because he's been working hard on this stuff. And I know you've seen a couple of, of uh, some of these, two thousand foot scholarship, you know, two thousand dollar scholarship, and you know this one. His scholarship is equivalent of a seventy one thousand know, dollar full rights four year scholarship. And you're like, whoa. Yeah. And my their draws are dropping, so I'm waiting for my." graduation that they're gonna the recruiter's gonna come and say the same thing, but he didn't. But the bottom line is is you go to the academy and they pay you. And you know the restrictions are you can't be over 27, you can't be married, you can't lie, cheat, or steal or tolerate amongst you anyone who does. You can get kicked out for missing a class. I mean so it's not you're getting an education and they're paying you but it's, it's a lot of, uh, I'll just say pain. So, I mean, it's, it's there to, to test you, but it's also building you into, uh, an air force officer. So having some flying experience, you're kind of just looking at it as a, all you think about as a freshman is you're getting yelled at, you're getting yelled at, because you got to memorize all of the, the, every fighter in the U S inventory. You have to, Memorized, you know, Duhay's quote and all the, you know, the discipline was based for a free nation, you know, soldiers of a free nation were reliable in battle. You had to do all this stuff and while they're yelling at you in your, you know, skivvies. But I have one of these upperclassmen that says, look, I, first of all, they, they couldn't hit you. And so I was extremely happy because I've been beat up by my brother all of my life. And here he just yelled at me and beat me up. Now they can't beat me up. But this guy goes, look. If you were in F4 and you got a backseater and you're on fire, here's all the emergency procedure steps that you have to have memorized. you think you're going to be more stressful than what I'm doing right now? And you kind of look at the guy and you go, no, you're probably right. It is more stressful. He says, this is easy. And he goes, just learn how to think, how to memorize and repeat things from rote memory when you're under stress, because that's what's going to take. That's what it takes. That's what you have to look for. So when you have that mindset, that's your first year, and you're just trying to get through it. And my brother said, look, and he was a jerk to me because he would leave notes in my box, and he was thinking about quitting, but he got through his you know, his freshman year, and he said, look, do good. Do really well. Uh, do, do well on academics and do well with the military order of merit, and you'll get on the superintendent's list, and you will get into the soaring program. And I said, oh, okay, you know, what's the soaring program? <laughs> hey, don't worry about it. Just do well. So I worked hard and I did well. And sure enough, I got in the soaring program. And what that meant was they had these sailplanes that the cadets, the instructor pilots, were cadets. And so you come in as an underclassman and you learn how, on your summer, in a three week period, you end up with a private pilot's license in gliding in a glider. So the tow pilots were all Vietnam vets flying these uh, Super Cubs because they had to be supercharged. But they would, you know, launch, and you were essentially learning how to fly against a uh, a Piper Cub because you're flying behind it like you were gunning it. You're being towed by a rope, but you're learning the actual all the things that you need to do to, you know, go into combat. But, but here I am as a uh, first time I fly. This the instructor goes. Damn, you're a natural, and I'm going well. Yeah, you know, it's it's just something that comes naturally to me. So anyway, so bottom line is, I got in the soaring program, I got my uh, pilot's license for soaring. Then it became an instructor. So I I flew 600 sorties in my four years at the academy, flying with uh, students and taking cadets. I mean, it was just what what could be possibly be better? Is you're getting your education and you're flying yeah now they also force you to do uh t41s which is a cessna 172 and this was to make sure that you could fly a powered airplane there was a very select few that got to do the gliders and be instructors a lot of guys you every cadet got in a, a orientation ride to see what gliders were like but only a few got selected for the program so i get i got a good deal so it was one of those okay Thanks, bro. (laughs) Did well by me. But anyway, but the T-41, now you're flying with instructors that are, um, they're not cadets. So they're actually academy, academic instructors. And I happened to have one. It was a flighter pilot, So this guy was going, ah, you know, the hardest thing about flying is getting the radio calls and all the other dumb shit stuff, pardon my French that the Air Force forces you to do. He says, but that's just a penalty you have to pay. It's not a big deal. I said, okay, got it. So anyway, so I'm flying with him and he's going, you know, your steep turns. You, you keep dropping like 200 feet. So he flies over top of a plateau where we're pretty high in altitude, you know, seven, 8,000 feet, but we're 200 feet over top of this plateau. And he goes, now do your steep turn. Well, <laughs> 200 feet you crashed no i'm climbing on this thing goes no i don't i want you to stay low look out the window and that's what you eventually learn about flying is looking out the window is your best horizon it's the best you know best reference for seeing whether you're descending or or you know rather than trying to look in at the instruments and that really was you know it was painful because all the radio calls and all the procedures, but that is exactly what you had to do when you got to pilot training. So from so when I graduated, you went to pilot training. Uh, your first airplane is a T-37. So it's a twin engine jet Cessna. So Cessna, and they called it the Tweet because it was the most productive uh, that you could ever have of a system that took jet fuel and turned it into squealing noise. So it was just this noisy, so you always, you had to wear headsets and around them. They were just nasty airplane. But anyway, so I'm doing really well in the class and I ended up getting my instrument check early, which was good because I was at Vance Air Force Base in Enid, Oklahoma, and it got to be winter time and there's ice and, and the T-38s, which is your next airplane, can't fly in the ice. So they would send one airplane up to go fly in the ice. And see if there was, you know, if it was clear enough for the T38s to fly it. And I happen to be the only student with the instrument check done. So I've gotten all these extra sorties until one day we went to move, and the ice on the wheels actually I'm trying to move the airplane. When it finally moved, the tread rolled off of the uh, tires, and the, the instructor goes, Okay, we're not flying, let's go in. And then and the the instructors for our class finally said, All right. It's been icy. It's been snowy. You guys are going to be the dealers for uh, Monte Carlo night, and you're going to be learn how to play. Uh, For us, it was craps. And so we taught, you know, so it it changed from a really difficult, uh, horrible experience to they finally became our buds. But after they finally got us through the instrument checks, then the next thing you got into was the T38. So. You graduated about, it was probably about six months of T-37, and then you were into the uh, the T-38 for the last six months. And the T-38 was supersonic, twin engines. The engines weren't very, uh, um, I won't say, they weren't rugged because they were actually from cruise missile engines, so they were only supposed to fly one time. <clears throat> the cruise missile goes in and blows up, no engine, who cares? But now you put them into this delicate airplane. But it was, man, it was a, it was like, being in a race car. So, everything you did, you were working towards getting the instructor pilot out of the back seat. And the T 37, you were working to get them out of the right seat. But even flying, you're on the sideways. That's a crew concept airplane. When you turn one direction, you're below the horizon. When you turn the other, you're above the horizon. In a T-38, you're on the horizon all the time because you're in the middle, and so it's a tandem airplane is just so much nicer than than a side by side. And it, you're flying the first flight, you're doing afterburner climb, and going supersonic. And you're going, oh, dude, I gotta do this. Really stubby wings, very. Uh, so you had to fly it all the way around, and so it was it was a dream. So that was the T-38, and when I now you're competing against your classmates the whole time okay so the t-37 a lot of guys were really good from being light aircraft once they got in the t-38 it was a make or break because in the final turn with the stubby wings you didn't have a lot of lift so you had to you're working right on the stall as you're coming around i love that airplane and in formation you're a rock solid so the uh, key pieces that they're trying to teach you is, hey, can you fly with another airplane? Can you judge closure and not hit them, and then stop and you know get in your formation? So your rejoins and all that stuff. And those were things you had to have depth perception. You had to be also aggressive, without being stupid. And then they're flying me with the, like the the squadron commander was a lieutenant colonel flight, fighter pilot hey, let me fly, you know, said, hey, sir, I'm the one getting the training, but we would do tactical formation, he's, he loved, I mean, he's going, oh, come on, please, let me fly, you know, hey, sir, I'm the student, he goes, okay, all right, all right, so anyway, but, but you could tell, he just loved flying, and that's the, uh, the fighter pilots that I flew with, they, it, it was just one of those things, my dad told me, he says, son, when you're going to the academy, tell him you want to be a fighter pilot, I said, well, what is that, because someone who flies fighters, but, Just realize people will hate you because you say that. They're just. But now I'm starting to see it. The T38 truly was wonderful. I mean, it was just, I mean, it was like, okay. And so when we got our uh, assignments down, you got to pick, well, I was the number two. So you put in what you wanted to do. And uh, the top guy wanted to be an instructor in the T38. So he was going to stay and so now i'm the top top one in the class so i wanted an f-15 and at the time the f-15 was brand new this Mm -hmm. is the first class that was going to get an f-15 one f-15 but not for vance air force base but for vance air force base william air force base reese air force base laughlin air force base wichita falls you know so I'm, i'm competing like 10 of these UPT bases and one F-15, and I didn't get it. So because I didn't get what I wanted, they looked at everybody else had put F-4 first, and they got their F-4s that were fighter qualified, and I got a T-33. And the T-33, it's actually, I'm sitting here going, my dad goes, what'd you get? Did you get an F-15? I go, uh, no, sir. Did you get an F-4? Uh, no, sir what you get? And he goes, oh, I got a T-33. He goes, oh, son, I flew those before you were born. <laughs> and that was his lead into the jet. So coming out of a P-51, where if you put the throttle up, it would torque roll and you could kill yourself. You had to take off and modulate the power on it. You call in a T-33 and there's a throttle and you have to keep the exhaust gas temperature is all you care about because it could overheat. So you're walking the throttle up and there's the thrust in idle was the same as an F 16. Oops, I was trying to do an up. Upst- anyway, the thrust in idle was the same as an F. The uh, mill power for it, the highest thrust was like an F 16 in, the, in the idle. Uh-huh. So I, and I'm looking at this. In my, so the guy that was running my class, my instructor, he goes, Look, if you want an F 4, we'll get you one. But call the guy at the T 30. Three squadron because it's a lead into the F 106. So I called this, and it was a, a major, Major Furman. I call him up and I say, Hey, sir, uh, Lieutenant Denver, I'm just, uh, they're telling me to call you because I got a T 33 and uh, they were offering me an F 4. He goes, Son, you come here and you're going to fly twice a day, every day. You're going to fly your ass off and you're going to go in the best fighter in the inventory. So Come down here, and it was Tyndall Air Force Base. I said, Okay, got it. So here we are, and it's a, I mean, it's no kidding. There's 30 lieutenants, and no squadron just has lieutenants. This one does. And they all come into the T 33s, and our missions were to fly and do intercepts against each other. We were training uh, ground controlled intercept officers. On their radar scopes, so they would just do intercepts and intercepts. So we learned you you worked your eyeballs out because I was 2010 vision. I could see an T 33 at 14 miles until they turned on, nose on, and then I couldn't see them again until six miles. But you knew exactly where they were, and you're following the directions of the GCI controller. So it was all innate. But what our boss was a, a colonel, a lieutenant colonel, uh, Buffalo Rome, so Richard R. Rome call sign Buffalo. So Buffalo had been in Vietnam and he had been watching the T-28 that landed. This guy got a medal of honor because one of their guys crashed. He landed on the runway, grabbed the guy, put him in the back of his airplane, single seat airplane, stuffed him in there, took off. And this guy, Buffalo Rome was going, boy, he's crazy. But he was Strafing all of the Viet Cong that were trying to race in and stop him from taking off, so he watched the guy get a Medal of Honor. <laughs> and his his mantra to us is, even though we're just doing trainers, we're going into fighters, and you need to be a fighter pilot. And this was really their chance to look at who was really going to be fighter pilots, because some of the guys, some of the lieutenants, the 36 lieutenants, they didn't go on to fighters. But you got selected and and you did that. That was it. So bottom line is I did T-33s for two years. Um, It's unheard of, but I I averaged 60 hours a month. And that was like unbelievable flying. You're flying twice a day, every day, just like he said, and then took across country one week in every month. Now, the wife's not too happy about that stuff, but it was like, dude, this is um, (laughs) lieutenants in heaven. So anyway, bottom line is then uh, I got selected for the F-106. And that was also at Tyndall Air Force Base for the training. So we got to watch the F 106s all the time. We were their targets when they were doing their intercepts. We learned everything about them. But so the first time I got in an F 106, they told me, Hey, you you got an F 106. I'm in uh, Phoenix and I'm in with another T 33 uh, pilot. And there's a 106 that's a B model that's going back to Tyndall. He said, Hey, I heard you just got an F106. And I go, "Yes sir." And he goes, "Want to ride with me? I'm I'm going to Florida." So I got my first ride in the backseat of an F106B model and it was uh, unbelievable. 1895 miles unrefueled. But he's coming into to land and he's going, "This place have three runways." And I go, "Yeah, good." Because it comes in at such a high angle of ten, you can't see what's in front of you. So It has three runways. He's got two on either side. He's hoping there's one underneath him. But that was just one of those. You're kidding me. No, no, this is the (laughs) way it is. Anyway, so I got to go into the 106. And uh, so, and when you're learning to fly, it's called a B course, basic course. So it takes about six months. And you fly all of the first of all, you take the airplane, you max performance, see how how well it does in the uh, high alpha. Where you're having you know close to stall that kind of stuff, and then you eventually learn the radar, and then you learn the tactics working together as a lead trail to go after an, an adversary. And as uh, an so F-106, you're defending the homeland. So we were Air Defense Command, and so uh, typically, well, my assignment was uh, going up to K.I. Sawyer, Michigan, Upper Peninsula, and I went there for four years. And while I was there, you. Basically, had to pull alert twice a week, where you go in to work in the morning, you go on alert, and then you'd come off the next day, and then you'd fly. So I was gone a lot. And then one week every month, you'd go on alert at your deck, which would be down in the south. So we initially were at Tyndall, and we had a place where you had two airplanes on alert. You had a third was a spare but you had two airplanes on alert, and you had uh, three pilots. And so one pilot would have a day off, and then you have two days on alert, then you had a day off, so you just kind of flopped in and out of this thing. So the alert was kind of uh, disappointing until we moved to Charleston, and then there were bear bombers, Russian bombers would go along the coast, and they would uh, tip their nose in on the air defense identification zone, make the the, uh, fighters scramble, then they'd turn out, and see how much you run you out of gas, they turn back in. So you got to see bears and actually go and scramble on adversary airplanes. And they would go from uh, over Iceland and then go down to Cuba and land. And then when they come back, they'd do the same thing and harass all of us. But we got to fly. You had to take off from a sound sleep to airborne in five minutes. So imagine that kind of a, the, uh, Heart rate that you gotta go. So you'd be you had your boots, you had everything lined up. So you jump out, pull on your flight suit, jump on your boots, race down, and then the crew chief has already taken everything off the airplane for the launch. He helped, do you need help strapping? No, I'll strap. You know, pull in the straps, put your helmet on, and you're starting the airplane. And your heart's racing, but you only had about eighty-five seconds from the time the engine started till you were launching, and then you you're on battle stations and, and gone. So the scrambles were awesome. I mean, it was just something that, dude, dude this is, this is, ew. so that was the 106. I did that for four years, which got me into the interceptor weapons school. While I was there, uh, they took your best instructors and they sent them down to the weapons school. And the weapons school is like a PhD for that airplane. So you learn everything about the radar, you learn everything about all the different weapons, you employ all of them. And so, as a uh, a young captain in the 106, I had gone down to used to have now you'll find this hard to believe, but for air defense, we carried a nuclear tipped Genie rocket that was designed to knock out Russian bomber formations. So the reason you had all the bases on the northern tier, like Minot, North Dakota, Griffiths, New York, Ki Sawyer, was because that was the shortest. Uh, route for them to come bomb the US, Chicago and hitting the so that's how everything was lined up and so these rockets this is in the doors on the, uh, they actually had internal weapons like the F-22, the F-35 the 106 had internal weapons so it could do Mach 2 on takeoff so there was nothing hanging out to slow it down, but the doors would open and this nuclear rocket would pop down and it would pull a lanyard and your airplane had to be perfectly steered because it was going to be a, an arrow going about eight miles in front of you and blowing up. And so when it came up out and it passed, when it passed your nose, first time you saw it, it was doing Mach 3. So it was just this explosive, <laughs> bang, whoa. And then they had a 50-pound phosphorus charge that would mark it where the nuke had just gone up. It would go boop. And if you were looking at it, you were blind. You were supposed to turn and pull 5 and a half Gs and be heading the other direction, so the nuclear blast pushed you out of the fight. But it was the only air-to-air missile that had a PK of 1, so it was a probability kill of 1. There's no other weapon that had that because they figured some of them would get 2 or 3 bombers. So anyway, so that was the 107. All right. That was so my first fighter my first love i had 1069 hours in that airplane and, and in a weapons instructor and then our it was obsolete so they were shutting down our base they were shutting down the airplane and uh we got promised that we were going to get fighters and so the first couple of guys got uh air liaison officers who were going to do uh non-flying jobs and so we got some uh, some help from the secretary of the air force hey these guys took they stayed open a little bit longer for this town you guys give them assignments so i ended up getting an f-16 and f-16 was to uh, kunsan in 1985. and uh, kunsan f-16 was an a model uh, that was a block 15. we flew block 10s block 15s and then uh, so i ended up going to school in the middle of February, we left KI Sawyer in a snowstorm and we got to Luke Air Force Base and no kidding. There was snow on the saguaro cactus and snow on the welcome sign for Phoenix, Arizona. But the next day we were swimming in the swimming pool because that water was a lot warmer than Lake Superior. it was like, wow, what a great place. So got in the F-16, it was fantastic, unbelievable, but I had never dropped a bomb before. And everybody else had been doing bombing and strafing and all sorts of stuff. We did air-to-air missiles and air-to-air gun, and I was qualified on all that stuff. But everybody in my class had done bombs, so they said, the instructor goes, Well, oh, we're just going to, yeah, just go ahead and uh, skip the, the uh, bomb academics. And I go, excuse me, what's this BDU-33 <laughs> thing? And they said... Oh, Conehead, and they call us Coneheads because we we had our radar, was our big, big threat, and so anyway, one of the guys goes, he was a, my my classmate was a weapons instructor in the F-4, so he knew everything about all the bombs and all the weapons, he goes, I'll teach you, so anyway, I went through and ended up getting top gun for a low angle bomb, I won't even tell the story of how that all happened, but then I go over to Kunsan, and now I have a, Basically, 30, 40 hours of F-16 time, 1,000 hours of 106 time, 1,200 hours of T-33 time. So I got a lot of hours, Mm -hmm. but I'm a wingman, so that's just how you show up. And so when when you're flying and fighting in the F-16, everything is done as a pair. And then that pair belongs to a four-ship, and that four-ship belongs to a squadron and so you'll have four or four typically about 12 uh, fighters in a group and then you'll you'll have eagles to protect you and uh the 106s we used to protect the F16s the interesting thing was uh, they would man everybody was ignoring us to go after the F16s why because they carry the bombs that are going to hit their base yeah. so here I am in in uh, we're going into these mass exercises uh, and you'd be flying, and you're going, "Gosh, here comes another bandit. <laughs> and so you you got more kills cause they were all coming to you to try to stop the bombers. After one year of you know, remote in Korea, I went back to uh, Luke and taught. And I taught for uh, three years. And then uh, I was about to get out of the Air Force. <laughs> it was long story. But I had 800 hours of F-16 time, and, and they said, hey, you know, gosh, we're opening up a squadron in uh, Netherlands. And I said, Netherlands? And the guy that's going through it, I'm teaching him how to fly the F-16, he's going, gosh. And I was a hunter, and he's a hunter. He's talking, oh, man, we'd love to have you. This is going to be great. And uh, he <laughs> comes back the next day, and he says, uh, you're not going to get the job. And I said, oh, why? He says, well, I, apparently the colonel's wives on this base don't like your wife. My wife is... She does like a, takes everything on as a debate. So anyway, bottom line is I put my papers in to uh, to leave, and the new wing commander invited me and my wife in. He said, uh, and his wife was there, and he says, uh, "Hey, I've been looking at your record. You got a really good record. Don't get out because of this one incident. I would never have let that happen." And I said, "Well, you know, all right, sir," uh, but. I would like to, you know, get an F-16 to Cunzon or, you know, uh, to Germany has been my first choice and I never get what I want. And he goes, well, I know a guy over there. And I said, that's a problem. That's the point. You always have to know somebody to get the jobs instead of just doing good work. No, no, you're doing a great job. Don't, don't get out. So I'm going, oh gosh. Okay. So I stayed in and I pulled my papers. I just made major. So they had to take my red line and take it away because I Went ahead and got promoted, and so I'm I'm I finally called the assignments guys and I go hey uh, yeah I don't know if you've heard the pathological lawyer from Saturday Night Live this is a I'd like to I have a major Bovenizer. I'd like to speak to Major Bovenizer. oh you know may I ask uh, what it's about Well, yeah I need him to give Major Ditmer an F16 to Germany. He goes, oh, may I ask who's asking? Ah, yeah, it's uh, General Creech. Yeah, that's the ticket. And uh, he's laughing. He's going, all right, Major Dittmer. I'll pass the message on And he hangs up, calls me like five minutes later. How about an F-16 to Spain, Germany? I go, well, yeah. but I mean, let me talk to my wife, but yes. And he, Why or how? And he would say yeah. they had a guy going to their weapons school and he busted out. They needed a weapons officer. And I had just done the weapons you know, at Weapons School in the 106, but I got re so they sent me to Germany. That's when I got to go to the war. So, when I got to Germany, my brother was my sponsor. So, here's Lips, and I became two Lips, uh-huh. because, but he was already flying F-16s there, so I'm flying F-16s in another squadron, and the uh, Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait. So... My boss was the uh, chief of weapons. I was weapons for the F-16. There was a weapons officer for the F-4. So we're all sitting there going, how the hell are we getting the war? When Saddam Hussein invaded, everything went to Saudi Arabia, to Oman, and down to Bahrain. So they were putting all the stuff and it was tactical air command. So everything from the United States was was based there. And we're going, but wait a minute, Turkey is a NATO ally. We're in Europe. We're in NATO. We're their allies. So we worked up a plan, um, no kidding, back on napkins, that we could come in and actually get all the way to Baghdad because all those defenses were to the south. They had nothing from the north. We could come in from the north and have a back door to Baghdad that would disrupt their ability to defend themselves. And so we briefed this up and no kidding, take this and we're going up to the, ended up with a four-star general going, all right, you go to Turkey. So I go to Turkey to start writing the oak plans or war plans for how we're going to do these attacks. And the Turks have said, look, they're going to be our neighbor 5,000 years from now. But if you go to war, we'll let you go to war. So if as soon as the shooting starts, then we will give you permission to attack. So I'm there at Christmas and I'm working through all this stuff, and 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 sure enough, on January 17th, boom, we got the uh, the go-ahead to cross cross the border after they did the, the first attack. So anyway, I'm working on all the plans, but I can't even they can't wouldn't let any more airplanes into Turkey until the war started. So now the Finally, the wild weasels and wild weasels are important kind of uh, it's a whole nother story, but wild weasels uh are surface air, we attack the surface air missiles. So wild weasels go in first, stir up the uh, sands to bring up their radars. We shoot anti-radiation missiles at their radars and knock them down so the bombers come in and drop their bomb. Works pretty good. So anyway, so I'm there writing these war plans and now. There's a squadron coming I've never flown with, but it's my brother's squadron. So he's there, and they show up, and they're going to let me fly eventually. But anyway, I'm going to be flying nights because I have to work nights. And so my first combat mission is on uh, January the 21st. 17th was when the war started, and my first combat mission was, let's just say, wasn't it great. So the way it happened is we. We knew where we were going to Mosul we had these B- B-52s, we going to drop bombs. F-111s, we going to drop bombs. And we had to go south of Mosul and to get there at night, you're flying in air refueling in the weather. And I hadn't flown in a long time, but I didn't tell anybody you're probably out of currency, but anyway, so I'm doing all the air refueling and everything's going like it's supposed to, except when we cross the border, you're hanging on the wing of an F-4. Because he has a guy in the backseat, the electronic warfare officer, that has the electronic order of battle on the size of a dinner plate. And the, the nose gunner is just, he's the taxi driver to get this guy close enough where he can shoot the missiles at these radars. And so you had to be hanging with him because we didn't know where the radars were. And he was going to tell me a heading and, a, and a, a type of radar, and then I was going to shoot. And my brother said, whatever you do, you know. Don't look at the harm. It's really bright. You'll get, you get night blindness. Oh, okay, got it. Here, have a gun. You know and all this stuff. And I'm going. Gosh, you know this is combat. I've, I've done a lot of combat in red flag, but nobody ever dies. And the interesting thing is, is you all get better because you land and go. Wow, that was a good tactic. Let's do that. You know, and you try new things. But we went in to combat and I crossed the the border and it's dark out. There's no lights on. There's nothing. And we go all the way down south of Mosul. I'm hanging with my F-4. And, and then we turn north because we're well south of Mosul. The bombers are coming in from the north. And they said, man, when the bombs go off, all hell breaks loose. And sure enough, the bombs hit. And so what they were doing, the Iraqis weren't stupid. They wouldn't turn their radars on early because we'd shoot them. But they knew whoever dropped a bomb was in, within five miles. So they could bring their radar up and shoot them. So that was their time to get the kills. So here we are, looking, waiting, and they're all waiting too. And as soon as the first bomb hits, AAA shoots. missiles are going off. My F4 goes slap shot, roll in, three one zero heading. I turn three one zero heading. I select a roll in. I pickle the button. I close my eyes. I open one and look down at my knee board. It's got white paper. That's not so bright. I look up and then the missile fires. So. I guess I had time, you know, lost track of the time. And so now I'm blind and no kidding. The F-4 I call, hey, two's blind <laughs> and it's nighttime. It's hard to see. And he's got all his lights off except the little green ones. And I look and I go, and he has shot a missile. And he's a few miles away. I, I point at him, and I uh, lock on, and I say, buddy lock. And he doesn't answer. And I go, oh, I locked the wrong guy. I'm on the wrong F-4 but he's happy because I've locked onto him. I, I didn't know that. I wish he had said something, but anyway, so I'm working my way out and, and, I'm now single ship in red flag. If you were by yourself, you were dead. And I'm by myself at night in a combat zone. There's no airplane flying. There's nobody going to shoot me down, but I finally get to the getting close to the border. I'm going, I'm going to make my first combat sortie. And I go warning, warning, fuel love. And I look down, and I go, holy shit, I've got still like 4,800 pounds of gas. Oh, that's on the wing tanks. And they stopped feeding when I tank inerted. I did the fence check and everything right, but I never looked at my gas. Otherwise, I would know they weren't feeding. And now they can't feed. And so I'm going, oh no, I'm about to lose an airplane. And so I snapshot called AWACS, could you give me a snapshot to a tanker? And i am seeing a rotating beacon off to the north of me as we're turning towards. We're kind of cutting the corner on Syria to head back to Inserlik. And uh, he said, Oh, no, we got a tanker's uh, three, oh, it's a 270 for 280 miles. And I go, Oh, that ain't going to work. And uh, our primary divert was the Yabrakur. It was 225 miles. No, that's not going to work. I got about maybe. And someone, the backseater of the, the F 4G goes, Stand by for coordinates of Batman. So he sends me the coordinates to Batman. I type it in. And by this time, I've gotten rid of my tanks. I got rid of the... Uh, so I'm climbing, and I'm up at 45,000 feet. And I get to 45,000 feet, and I type in Batman, and it says I'm going to get there with zero fuel. I go, yes! Because if you got zero fuel at 40,000 feet, it means you're going to descend. You'll have enough land, fuel to land. So I stand by for frequency for Batman. So I call Batman. Batman, Batman, this is a you know, Gen 0 for an um, emergency fuel, No, cannot land here. I said, no, oh, no, no, I'm emergency fuel. I have to land here. Now, by this time, I'm looking down into a valley of mountains, and I'm seeing clouds that I'm not sure if they're fog or clouds. And there's black holes, and none of them are lit up. And I said, could you turn on your air, airfield lights? You cannot land here. <laughs> so <laughs> he turns on the lights, and I can see the trees light up. So I go, OK, it's it's not fog. And I'm now I'm descending in and I've got to find it. And I have no idea which way the runway is. I pop through the clouds and it's pretty low. In fact, it's really low. But fortunately, it had just rained. And off in the distance, the town of Batman, the lights are on. So the bottoms of the clouds are lit up. And I see the reflection of the runway in the water because it had just rained here. I put my gear down, the lights come on, the guy starts screaming, You cannot land here. You cannot. I said, I have to land here. I have 250 pounds of fuel. I'm just about to flame out. I'm coming around the corner. And the rest of the story was, you see, never say, you cannot land here. There's men and equipment on the runway. They're doing repairs. Well, those men and equipment are running like off the runway. They're moving vehicles. I come through and I land. Oof. And I still, I, you must hold your position. I will hold my position. I'll do whatever you want go ahead. You know, what do you need? And, and this guy drives up in a truck and he looks at me and he goes, the international signal for what the hell? And I said, <laughs> I need fuel. He goes, follow me. And he's a follow me truck. So I'm following him. And as soon as I clear the runway, the engine goes <laughs> and it's out of gas. So I turn off the EPU, to hide all that stuff. So it doesn't do emergencies, but my airplane stops. The lights go off. This guy's driving and he comes back like, <laughs> full. What the yeah. Give me my chocks. He chocks my airplane. And by the time I crawl out, the place is surrounded by Turks. And the Turks weren't in the war. They were, but they were very interested because they were the closest base to Iraq. And so they didn't know if they were going to be attacked. And they were said I was very lucky I didn't get shot down because they had AAA and a bunch of other uh hair-triggered gunners. So anyway, the bottom line is is we get the general Tuxoy. He says, Major Dipmer, what kind of missile is this? I said, well, that's an AGM-88 high-speed anti-radiation missile. Well, where's your other one? I said, sir, that's in a Roland right next to Mosul. He goes, slaps me on the back. He goes, come with me. We go to his command post. He sits me down. He opens up the big board, pulls up the the map, and I go, oh, gosh, you're way behind. And I show him all the, the radars that we've killed, and then he goes, What can I do for you? And he's giving me tea and some donuts. I said, I need fuel. Oh, your airplane is fully fueled. "Uh, I need a flight plan. Oh, you have a flight plan. I need a ride to my airplane. He says, come with me. Puts me in the car, take off. I'm kidding. Catch the airplanes that were landing as I got to the airfield. So they were still landing when I came in. And they said, is your airplane broken? I said, no, it's code one. I got rid of the fuel. The tanks weren't feeding. Oh, it's fixed because those are gone. So anyway. So that's my first war story and the hardest one ever. But uh, anyway, so
0: sorry about running you over your time. No, man. no, this is no, this is perfect. That's perfect. I mean, what a what a great journey and what a, you know, intense <laughs> kind of oh, yeah. uh, recount there at the end. Um, wow. I mean, that's that's a lot. I mean, you know,
1: it's called war stories and they have to have 10 percent truth fighter pilots that's kind of the way we work so you can embellish but you got to have at least some truth but yeah no it was actually and I I sent them a case of uh, booze I went over the guys that would actually go to Batman were our uh, special forces and if we ever punched out they would go in and rescue us so they would fly into the Batman with the night vision goggles on a C-130 so I gave him a case of uh, booze, and, and I sent a note to General Toxway. Thank the uh, controllers. Please share this with your guys. They saved my airplane, quite possibly saved my life. And uh, three nights later, knocking on the door, I open it up. It's one of the spooks. He's got beard. He goes, hey, are you major difference? Yes, sir. He goes, I'm not a sir. I'm a He goes, got a birthday present for you. And it is a birthday present from General Toxway. And I open it up. It's four bottles of wine. But it, the thing is, General Toxtoy says, uh, in Turkey, we say when a man's life has been saved, he is reborn. And your new birthday is now, 21 January. <laughs> so,
0: that's pretty good. Yeah.
1: And my brother and I drank the worst <laughs> wine I've ever had. But I, yeah, yeah it was worth it. So that's being a
0: fight. <laughs> You're reborn that day. Oh, yeah when i do
1: it over everything we've done you know from all the assignments yeah i do it over every bit of it, i do it over again i mean i I'm, I'm so jealous of the guys going into the f35 and f22 now you know it's it's just a whole yeah
0: once you're in it
1: <laughs> you're there for the, it's it's just a it's a life
0: yeah well you know to what advice would you give to aspiring fighter pilots who might be listening to this podcast yeah
1: so if, if you want to be a fighter pilot um it's it's kind of changed uh, the meritocracy piece is uh, huge when i was there you were fighting all the time to be number one you know so they're so they're kind of going oh you know this is not as important and you're going well you actually have an advantage if you had flying times, so they want to take that advantage away from you, so that they can then judge, you know, equally from the the pool of folks. And you're going, okay, you know, good luck with that, <laughs> because the flying that my dad did was spins and a bunch of other stuff that you know that just won't you won't get in a in the school. So, but it's desire, but it's a mindset, you know, to fly airplanes it's it's great it's wonderful but if you're flying an airplane you want to get that other person out (laughs) you're a fighter pilot (laughs) I don't want to hear I don't want to say is the gear clear oh yes go ahead and raise it okay I'm raising the gear yeah you're raising the gear you don't say anything you don't even most of the airplanes you don't even run the intercom so it's just silent. it's and you can go back to you know the uh high flight poem, you know, but I've reached out and touched the face of God. I've been up to 68,000 feet because I could, but boy, I was still supersonic at 140 knots. And I'm going, man, that's my stall speed. And it's supersonic. Oh, But wow. I mean, anyway, there's, you just, there's things that you see, but one of the things I used to teach the uh, young kids when they are coming into the F-16, <clears throat> oh, wow, this is the F-16. It's wonderful. But being a fighter pilot, Means you're going to take the fight to the enemy. There are no points for second place. Your family gets a, a flag and a triangle, and, and your enemy got a spot in Arlington. So you're not playing for, oh gosh, you know, I don't get a trophy for participating. If you're participating in the war and you want to support it, there's lots of missions. Flying a C 17 in and delivering stuff flying a tanker and giving gas but if you're gonna go fight in a war you know there was an f-117 pilot that dropped and I tell these the kids this that he dropped a bomb and it was a uh, it was a uh, hard and deeply buried target and it was this they knew it was a command post but the families of the generals and the uh, the officers had been put in this thing and so he killed a couple hundred civilians with a single bomb and you're going that wasn't the hardest sortie. The hardest sortie is he had to fly the next night and and go after another target. And that's a mindset that you got to understand. And that's part of what we, you you're, you're building a warrior, and all the training you do has to be focused on, on that. Um, and there never was a chance. I'm, I had a, I watched some kid was leaving the F twenty two because everybody picked on him. And they're always, no, I can never do anything right. Dude, if they didn't talk to you, if they didn't give you feedback, if they didn't try to make you better, then that's when I would be worried. Because we always, I mean, the, the longest debriefs, two or three hours. Even if you did something good, if you had a colonel, a, a when I was a colonel, if I flew with somebody and they didn't debrief me on something because they, oh, you're a colonel. No, <laughs> you got to tell me what I did wrong because I, I, I got to get better so I can go to war and survive. And to be effective, what I told my kids, and I, I had two boys, that hey, I, I want to go to the war. I went to desert fox, and I took, I was a squadron commander, and I took a squadron, I took all my, all my pilots, to do Southern Watch, and they're going, oh, God, don't do that. And I said, dude. <laughs> Everywhere I go, something happens. I was in Germany for the fall of the wall. I did, you know, Desert Storm. I did all of these things. Everywhere I go, something happens. And when we, three days after we got there, we went to war and we dropped laser guided bombs at night, hitting these targets in Iraq because they kicked out the uh, UN inspectors. Uh, but that was like, dude, you can, so they, I told him, look, if I turn and run, you can return around. If I'm going, you're going. So just follow me. And I took them in and flew the first mission in. We dropped our bombs, everything. The guys come back and they go, sir, it was just like you said. I go, yeah, check your fuel. Because <laughs> I didn't that one time, you know, but it, it's like harder than you'll ever be in combat because your adversary doesn't come back from the right they don't get better because you don't debrief them. And most of the adversaries that we're against, you know, China, they don't debrief. There's that saving face, you know, Oh, I'm still alive. I'm briefed with Koreans that, you know, oh, you didn't shoot me down. I said, well, my pepper's on your head, but yeah, I didn't pull the trigger. But if I'm gunning you, someone else could gun you, you know, no, 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 I'm not dead. you like, oh, okay. That's, there's a mindset that has to be in getting better. And it's just, there is no points for second place.
0: So. You have to em- embody that. Yes. You know, y- you have to be willing to accept that criticism because it improves your proficiency. And if you're not proficient, it can mean the loss of your yeah.
1: life. Right. And, and, you know, dude, tell me what the standards are. And I'm going to, I'm not going to only meet the standards. I'm going to do better. And so you're always just constantly striving to get better. And the guys that that don't do that, they shouldn't be in fiber. And so I told them I brief every new class coming into Luke, and I say, hey, go ahead. Don't. It's seven eight million dollars to go through the class, you know. So per pilot. So you don't want you want them to go. Look, I want to do something else. Okay, do it before we spend that amount of money. I, the money now is probably more than that. And again. Um, you, we were paying $5,000 an hour for F-16 time. And now it's probably close to $16,000 an hour. Cause you got all the breakage parts that have to be replaced and that type of stuff. So uh, it's, it's expensive, but there's you're training the whole time. It's never the same. Every sortie was different when you're fighting somebody and they told you, Oh yeah, I'll never go up. All right, I'll go up. And if you can't beat me. Then maybe it's not a bad thing for me to go up. Well, how did you do that? <laughs> dude, don't be, you know, sit there and just say, Hey, I, I, you know, give me something to work with. So anyway, it's, it's so dynamic, you know, even with the bombs, the just weather and winds and all sorts of stuff, but, uh, gosh, like I said, i enjoyed every, I would not trade any of it for what we've done. So it was neat so thank you for paying taxes i really really (laughs) and the guys that are flying f-22s and the gals they appreciate it too because they get to keep doing
0: it kurt a great story a great great hearing your stories um i just want to say you know thank you for sharing your knowledge and time today we really appreciate it it's
1: nice meeting you and i look forward to actually seeing you in person sometime so watch some of your podcasts
0: That wraps up our conversation with Kurt. We talked about how U.S. fighter jets were scrambled during the Cold War, World War II bomber pilots, and the importance of implementing feedback prior to fighting an adversary. Go to this episode's show notes to see any resources Kurt mentioned during our episode. And lastly, subscribe to the Simple Questions podcast to get notified when our latest episodes are released. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep asking questions.